0: That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time ever every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to look at a classic episode that aired back in July of 2012, July 16th, to be precise. And it is titled Tech Stuff Looks at Supercomputers. This was a fun discussion to have with my former co-host Chris Pallette, because I, you know, grew up in an era of supercomputers and only had sort of a vague idea of what that term meant for many years. I'm sure there was a time when I was a kid where I thought of it as a computer that wore a cape, but as it turns out, it gets a little more complicated than that. Let's listen in. So Chris, if I were to ask you just off the top of your head, how would you define a supercomputer, what would you say?
1: Well, if I hadn't already made the joke, I would have said it was a computer in a cape and tights. But no, honestly, I would say a a supercomputer is a computer that can do a lot more calculations in a shorter period of time than the machines sitting on our desktop.
0: Yeah, I think of it as sort of the bleeding edge of what a computer is capable of doing.
1: Yeah, something that that still fills a room even though typical computers these days don't need to fill a room because it's that big it yeah. still has that much computing power
0: right right and the the term comes from the 1960s and uh in order to really kind of understand the 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 span of this i think uh, i was going to talk a little bit about the the last computer i could find that was a powerful computer that existed before people started talking about supercomputers okay which was the IBM 7030 Stretch.
1: <laughs> yes, that was the one that was uh, made with uh, elastic. Yes. <laughs> <that's>, it, <laughs> you gain know. a couple pounds, your computer can still, you know, fit. It was Mr. Fantastic
0: of the computer world. <laughs> no, because it was not a supercomputer. Uh, it took up 2,000 square feet back in the day. Uh, this being the the early '60s, that's
1: bigger um, than my house.
0: 2,000 square feet. It cost 13 million dollars, which, if you were to translate to today's uh, cash, would be 91 million dollars. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of cash. So that was the fastest computer at the time until a fellow named Seymour Roger Cray showed up.
1: Ah, yes, Mr. Cray.
0: Yeah, Cray ends up being a big name in supercomputers, particularly in the 60s, 70s, and uh, up to the mid-80s. That was the name in supercomputers. And he uh, was working for a company called Engineering Research Associates, or Mm -hmm. ERA, which actually grew out of uh, a naval operation, Meaning the U.S. Navy, not belly button. I was going to say, was it covered in lint? You were looking at me like, it's the belly button joke. No, no, not that. <laughs> it was a Navy project. How about that? As okay. in, as in the, the military force, not the color. It was a Navy project that was all about code-breaking. Mm-hmm. All right, So there was this project for, about code-breaking that eventually kind of spun off and became an actual company all on its own called Engineering Research Associates, and it branched out beyond code-breaking, although it took all the code-breaking work it could get.
1: Yeah, we talked about the Enigma um, some episodes back yes, now. Yes, many. Um, and we were talking about the Bomb um, and yeah, those early, uh, that was really the early application for supercomputers was, yeah. you know, needing to crunch a lot of data very quickly. And there weren't, there weren't the kind of applications that we have now. We'll get into that, I'm sure, in just yeah, a few minutes. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, why would you need a supercomputer? You know, that was, that's probably about the only thing I could think of where people were needing to crunch that kind of information as quickly as possible.
0: Right, yeah. And Defense. It, yeah, typically, especially with the early supercomputers, they were really designed for very specialized computing. So not necessarily specialized from the ground up for a, one particular type of computing, but right. they were they were not meant to be general computers. They were meant to do... Tip, uh, ver, uh, no, Admiral computers, they were <laughs> in the Navy. That's true. Uh, n- no, they were they were meant to do a, a specific task very very well, and right. that's that's all they were meant to do. Yeah. Um, now, Cray had an interesting philosophy. He said, and this is this is a quote from him. He said, "Anyone can build a fast CPU. The trick is to build a fast system." And that was the secret to Cray creating the first supercomputer. He realized that if you created a processor that was really, really fast, that did not matter if it couldn't get the data it needed to, to execute operations upon fast enough. Mm-hmm. So he saw the need to create a system that would move data through very, very quickly. Not just process data, but move it. So that means it needs a lot of memory. It needs a very fast pathway from memory to processor.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. There are a lot of pieces that have to be put in place. And he saw this very early on. And so... Using that philosophy, he designed a computer back in 1962 that was called the CDC 6600. Now, CDC stands for Control Data Corporation.
1: Yeah, um, uh, ERA was taken over by Remington Rand. Yes, um, and that's uh, that's a name I remember because I you know uh, still remember a lot of those old machine names um, from stuff that I found in my uh, dad's collection. Of course, he was you know, a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. um, before he retired. And, and you know, so he was interested in all kinds of machines. And uh, I didn't know what I was looking at at the time, of course. You know, but there were all these um, science and computing magazines laying around. And th- that name I recognize. Also, Unisys, because Remington Rand became Unisys. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably a lot more of our listeners are familiar with that name. But uh, he partnered with William Norris to start Control Data Corporation. Um, back in 1957, um, and really at that point, uh, the Univac from Remington Rand and IBM uh, were the computing companies. And, yeah, you know, IBM has been the heavyweight for so long. Right. Uh, but CDC was the first, uh, you know, upstart to really make a dent in their uh, stranglehold on the the industry.
0: And and Cray wanted to join CDC fairly early on, but apparently uh, he was needed for a a project. Um, That would not let him leave exactly when he wanted to. So once he did leave, that's when he designed the CDC Mm 6600, which was officially announced in 1964. So designed in 62, announced two years later, and it was the first commercially successful supercomputer with a price tag of between 7 and $8 million, sometimes going up as high as $10 million, depending upon the configuration that the customer wanted. Um, now, in today's cash, that would equal about $60 million, so $31 million cheaper in today's money than the, uh, the, the Stretch computer, and uh, it was actually much more powerful. It had four hundred thousand transistors and one hundred miles of wiring, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. was the size of about four filing cabinets. So it was also significantly smaller than mm-hmm. the Stretch. Mm-hmm. It didn't take up two thousand square feet. Uh, the clock speed was around a hundred nanoseconds, mm-hmm. and it had sixty-five thousand sixty-bit words of memory. So this is kind of an odd time in computing. We hadn't really settled on the 32-64-bit kind of model. This yeah. was before that. Um, it also used six high-speed drums as sort of a temporary storage area. It had a central storage that used magnetic tape, and it used the Fortran 66 compiler. Um, the equivalent to today's machines means that it would have about a 10 megahertz Processor. Yeah. Well, Uh, that could work up
1: to 40 megahertz in speed. Well, it could do uh, 3 million floating point operations per second. Yeah, those are flops. Flops. I love that word. Yeah. So, 3 million.
0: That'd be a megaflop. Three megaflops. Right. Yep. Yep. So we're gonna get into lots of different flop terms later as well. They, They get incredibly huge.
1: Yeah, um, Of course, you have to keep it cool because otherwise it breaks out into a flop sweat.
0: That's true. Uh, well, not the flop sweat part, but you do have to keep it cool. <laughs> as we know, electronics, when you're running electricity through them, one of the byproducts is heat. And yep. heat, as it turns out, is not a great thing for electronic components. It can make stuff expand, contacts can lose connections so that stuff starts to malfunction, an entire system could shut down. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CDC sixty-six hundred had a cooling system that was provided by a, a special chemical, Freon. Really? Yeah, they used Freon to cool the system. In fact, it was uh, uh, they would use Freon for a while um, before finally having to switch to a different coolant because Freon just wasn't uh, efficient enough. Eventually, now mm-hmm. at the sixty-six hundred, it was still doing the the, the job. So,
1: mm-hmm. uh, Cray was. Also an innovator in another way, uh, the Stretch, IBM Stretch, the 7030, um, was sort of a hybrid machine. Uh, they had transistors and vacuum tubes mm-hmm. in it. Um, and that's, I think, why uh, one of the reasons why Cray's machines were smaller. The uh, 1604, which uh, preceded the 6600, um, was the, uh, one of the very first to use transistors only. So the uh, the 6600 was also a, a transistor machine. Yeah. And so it would take up a lot less space than the vacuum tubes. And I would imagine that, uh, based on my knowledge, my personal knowledge of vacuum tubes, it might have been a little cooler simply because of that.
0: Yeah, I would imagine um, that they wouldn't have had to have as dramatic an AC system to keep the 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 room bearable, because <laughs> yep. vacuum tubes do put off a lot of heat. Um, Another interesting IBM CDC connection here is that Thomas Watson, Jr., which was uh, IBM's – he was IBM's CEO at the time, uh, wrote a famous memo (laughs) at that time to IBM employees, and he said – Last week, Controlled Data announced the 6600 system. I understand that in the laboratory developing the system, there are only 34 people, including the janitor. Of these, 14 are engineers and 4 are programmers. Contrasting this modest effort with our vast developmental activities, I fail to understand why we have lost our industry leadership position by letting someone else offer the world's most powerful computer. Cray's response was reportedly, well, there's your problem. (laughs) Essentially, Craig was saying that, you know, perhaps IBM's approach was a little uh, burdened by size, that IBM had grown so large that to manage a project like this was very difficult to do because Mm -hmm. it was just too big. So that's an interesting idea that uh, an organization needed to be kind of small and nimble in order to pull something off, like creating the world's fastest computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He followed up the CDC 6600 with the 7600, which had a 65,536 60-bit word memory and a clock speed of 27 nanoseconds, uh, and actually, in practice, ran about five times faster than the 6600. But then Cray left CDC... And he formed his own company, Cray Research. Mm-hmm. 1972. And in 1976, he introduced the Cray-1, which, if you've ever heard the Cray supercomputer, that's what this is. It's, mm-hmm. The Cray-1 was the first of those. It had a clock speed of a, well, it, its processor ran at 80 megahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, and back at this time, these supercomputers were still using a single CPU. Right. Uh, so that was kind of interesting too. These were single CPU systems. So it had 80 megahertz processor, 64-bit system. It ran uh, at 136 megaflops, so 136 million floating operations per second, and it had 1,662 printed circuit boards that made up the the components of this computer. Mm-hmm. It cost between five and eight million dollars, depending on how you wanted it set up. And in today's cash, that's about 25 million dollars. So we see that the processor speed is increasing mm-hmm. and the price is coming down. Often the size of the computer is decreasing as well, although that that also flip-flops uh, over the years. Right. Because while the solid-state electronics definitely brought the size down, eventually the way we pack in more speed requires more space. But we'll get into that. Okay. So... After the Cray One came the Cray XMP in 1982.
1: Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting because Cray realized also, in addition to the fact that he knew that the components, uh, the all of the components, the entire machine uh, was important and not just a processor. He also realized that uh, early on that parallel processing could also speed things up. Um, now. It's common for us to have multi-core processors in our desktop machines or laptops or in fact now we're starting to see them in our mobile devices. Yes. Um but um you know at the, at the time in the 70s and 80s this was still something sort of newish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and it's not something that everybody realized. Uh so the XMP actually was two Cray-1 computers l- linked together. Um and using those two machines together in a multiprocessing effort, um, they could triple the performance of just one Cray-1. 1, yeah. Um, which is something interesting to note. And uh, uh, in 1985, the Cray-2 had four processors mm-hmm. in the same machine, and that was the first to exceed one billion flops, as Britannica tells me.
0: Yeah, it, uh, it actually could have up to eight CPUs, the Cray-2. Um, the these machines often over time were upgraded, so the initial ste- specs you would get when they were sure. first released were one thing, and then by the end of the run of production, they would be better. I mean, which makes sense. I mean, we we see that in computers all the time. We def- we tend to call them different model numbers now, but same sort of thing happens. Mm-hmm. So back in 1982, you had this the Cray XMP with 105 megahertz CPUs running around 200 megaflops uh, each. Uh, and if they had up to four CPUs, you could get 800 megaflops going. And that was pretty impressive. It had the equivalent, by the way, of 128 megabytes of RAM. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you think about that. 128 megabytes of RAM in 1982, that was considered bleeding edge for a supercomputer. Well, sure. Um and the storage units for the Cray XMP were the size of a file cabinet and they could hold up to 12 gigs of storage.
1: I was going to have now, a flash drive in my bag with me that has 8 gigs.
0: Yeah, and you can find less you can than find $10. you can find 20 gig or more flash drives which you know, you think about that. That's something that is small enough for you to carry on a keychain. Mm-hmm. Well, back in 1982, you had a file cabinet sized device that could hold 12 gigs and that was considered massive like a massive amount of information. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, time really does change things, doesn't it? So, yeah, the Kray 2 uh that's when they switched from freon to Florinert
1: as their coolant. Yeah, it, I'm I'm sorry, but that sounds like a made-up alien name from a from a uh, an animated movie. Technically all names are made up. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> Yeah, that's
0: I just blew your mind. What if, <laughs> what if there were no hypothetical questions? <laughs> Turn uh, on
1: the Glufinart.
0: Yes. So the fluorinert, the reason why they switched was because they had at that point, packed the components so tightly together that Freon was not efficient enough to cool them. So they switched from freon to fluorinert. and uh,
1: <laughs> What's the little florinert I've had around? It's somewhere around? Then
0: here. They, they also had to figure out a new way to access the memory on the Cray 2, because at this point they had reached that that point that Cray had mentioned earlier about creating a CPU that can process information faster than it can pull information in. So they found they would actually dedicate processors to getting data from memory and, and funneling it into the 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 central processing units. And uh, this was uh, this was really important. It was what kind of led the way into threading and mm-hmm. and loading memory um, mm-hmm. CPUs that have that capability to load information from memory, preloading things. That kind of came out of this work. In fact, a lot of the uh, the advances that we see in personal computers um, are really possible because of the pioneering work that was done in supercomputers. It was stuff that that found its way from the engineering of supercomputers into personal computers.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
0: often uh, a, a completely different sense of scale but a similar approach. Now, after the Cray 2, that's when uh, Japan started to produce some supercomputers that were uh, that were actually faster than anything that was being produced in the United States.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, up until this point it was all US. That was they dominated the that country dominated the supercomputer industry. Right. But in 1996, so this is, you know, again, the Cray craze, if you will. Well. Lasted from the 60s all the way into the 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, in 96, Japan introduced the sr 2201 which had 2,048 processors. So remember, a Cray 2, that was up to eight processors. Mm-hmm. The sr 2201 2,048 processors. Yep, yep. I count 2,040 more processors with that computer than with the Cray 2. Mm-hmm. My math could be off. I'm an English major, <laughs> uh, and it could it could have up to 600 gigaflops mm-hmm. of uh, processing. That's yeah. kind of crazy.
1: Um, yeah, I also I also feel like we would be remiss to mention the efforts of uh, Danny Hillis. Mm. Um, w. Daniel Hillis was a, a grad student at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, when he realized that uh, distributing computing was the way of the future, if you will. Yeah. Um he started thinking Machines Corporation in 1983. Um and this CM1 which was the first of his machines to come out in 85. Mm-hmm. Um it had uh uh 65536 1-bit processors grouped 16 to a chip. Interesting. Um That's a that's a really interesting approach.
0: <laughs> tiny tiny processors. Huh. Yeah. So, you know, wow. But yeah, I, I didn't come across that in my um, my my research, which is why this is actually really <laughs> like I, I'm my mind is reeling as I'm thinking about that sort of architecture. That's really an interesting oh, yeah.
1: approach. Well, it's interesting too to see how different. Uh, see, Jonathan and I do our research separately on purpose, so that we uh, come up with different things. Yeah. in a lot of cases, and um, so it's funny that that I would have come across that. I also, uh, well, I, I think of. Danny Hillis, because I've seen his name a lot in uh, things like the Long Now Foundation and, mm. and people with he he hangs out with people like Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly, um, fascinating people. But um, anyway, yeah, that that's uh, that was one of his contributions, and you see that in again in today's machines. I mean, we have this you know with us every day. But you know, this is uh, this is when we started to realize that you don't necessarily have to. Uh, go by moore 's law and wait until next year 's chip comes out with twice as many processors on it you can You, you can do this by uh, dividing up the work yeah and and in fact that 's another good
0: point about the s r twenty two o one the mm-hmm. computer from Japan because Uh, in order to use these 2048 processors uh, there was a new development in computer science which was called multiple instruction multiple data or MIMD yes Uh now this is the idea of being able to solve problems by pulling in information from from memory and feeding it to different processors that are all using different operations on that data to come to a single solution Mm-hmm. not necessarily a single solution but that's i'm using that as as an example for this for this uh, explanation so This MIMD approach is what allowed us to develop multi-core processors. Yes. Because in this case, we're still talking about single processors that are all grouped together. Eventually, we will get to the point where we have multi-core processors, where a single processor has multiple cores, and each core can work on part of a problem or separate problems to... Solve things faster to to get to a a conclusion faster than they would if it was just one single processor, uh, even if it was a really, really fast processor mm-hmm. working on a series of problems so i always I always use this analogy: Imagine that you have uh, one super smart math genius taking a math test, and the math genius is going through and solving all of these problems. And he or she is able to do this flawlessly, mm-hmm. in, in, able to solve all the problems. But it takes a certain amount of time to get through the test. Then you give that same test to four above average math students. They're not geniuses, but they're, they're, they can hold their own. Mm-hmm. And you divide it up. Say, all right, you take this, this one fourth of the test. You take this quarter. You take this quarter and you take that quarter. And the four students together start to work. Those four students are very likely going to be able to finish the entirety of that test much faster, each of them working on a quarter of it, rather than the, uh, the genius who is working on the full thing at the same time. Even though the genius is smarter and can work faster on each individual problem, Collectively, those four students are going to solve that test faster. Mm-hmm. That's the philosophy behind both grouping cores together and making them uh, a parallel processing unit,
1: or taking a multi-core approach to a CPU. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you can you can thank Danny Hillis for figuring out the idea of massively parallel computing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know that that's a problem though too, uh, because instead of having two machines running side-by-side and linked together, Mm -hmm. now you have to figure out how you're going to parse all those instructions between all those different processors. Right. So you have to have the software or the operating system that will uh, give instructions to each of the processors uh, actively and direct, essentially directing traffic. Yes, this is this is kind it's of hard. Like, it's not, is, it's not a simple thing to figure out. It reminds me
0: of Intel's tick tock approach to developing processors. Mm-hmm. You think of the tick being the physical machinery that's going to do the processing. Right. And you think of the talk as the software that's Optimized to work on that physical hardware to make it really live up to its potential. And then you have another tick where you've got an advancement in the physical hardware, but perhaps the last generation of software isn't really optimized to work on that, so you have to make new software. This is a a continuation. In fact, that's one of the things that uh, people say is a barrier to artificial intelligence to the point of having a, a... A computer that has Mm self-awareness. It's not necessarily that we can't reach the physical uh, uh, requirements we would need in order to have a computer be able to to have some form of self-awareness. It's the idea that we could throw as much horsepower at the problem as we wanted to. Without the software, it just won't happen. We'll be rejoining this classic episode in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. and. I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express
2: card. If you travel, you know. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Ravs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
3: There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's Radio's iHeart Country Radio discover more shows and movies for free
0: There's one company name we haven't really mentioned yet and it's big I mean we talked about it a little bit just then but not in the terms of supercomputers it's a big name in computer architecture, but it wasn't a really big name in the whole supercomputer story, and that's Intel. Mm -hmm. Now, Intel was not just sitting back during this whole time. Now, granted, Intel's main focus is on enterprise and consumer processors, which are not completely analogous to what you you find in supercomputers at this time. Uh, That would change, but not... Immediately. But Intel did develop something called the Paragon,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which was supposed to be, you know, another fantastic supercomputer. And it could support up to 4,000 processors using this MIMD architecture. Mm-hmm. But it did not succeed in the market. It just sort of, well, it flopped in a different way.
1: <laughs> the other kind of flop.
0: Yeah, the bad kind. So that didn't really go anywhere, but it did. Again, sort of push this trend of parallel processing and MIMD. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese came out with uh, uh, a couple of other computers called ASCII Red and ASCII White.
1: Intel also had an ASCII Red. Um, yeah. yeah um, well, actually, this this goes back to the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty uh, mm-hmm. that the United States signed um, in 1996. They uh, they needed a certification program for the nuclear weapons that they had built up. And, uh, so what they started was the Accelerated Strategic Computing Initiative, uh, ASCII with only one eye instead of ASCII characters. Yes. With two eyes. Just, just to clarify. Yes, I'm glad you did. Uh, thank you. Uh, and ASCII Red, yes, was built at, uh, Sandia National Laboratories in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Intel, uh, helped them out with that and uh, that was the first machine to get, uh, a teraflop.
0: Yeah, it hit it was the first one to to break the teraflop barrier. It did that with 6200 megahertz Pentium Pro
1: processors, 9072 of them.
0: Well, 6,000 at first. It then eventually was upgraded. The very okay, first yeah. one had 6,000. And
1: the very last one
0: had 9,298 Pentium II Xeon processors. Yep. And it actually hit 3.1 teraflops at the end of its uh, production life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I said, you know, when we give these numbers, there are different ones because there's a certain amount that was available when the computer first premiered. Then there was like the average amount during the computer's lifetime, and then the amount that was available at the very end of its runtime. So these numbers do change a little bit depending upon which source you're reading and which version of the computer right. they're looking at. Because, right. again, these computers are, they come in a range of models, so not all of them are exactly
1: the same. Mm-hmm. Now, while we, we talk about uh, uh, playing games like chess, you know yeah. that, that's one of the big uh, consumer uh Visibility issues with with supercomputer. You don't see what supercomputers do, and that was a way for them, the uh, IBM in, in particular, to achieve notice. Yeah, was taking on uh, people like Gary Kasparov, right? Uh, chess masters mm-hmm. worldwide with a supercomputer. Can a computer outthink, quote unquote, outthink a human? Yep. Well, the point of ASCII was, again, one of those behind-the-scenes things. It was a very military thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was more like Whopper in war games, actually. Uh, Shall we play a game? Actually, exactly like that. The point was to simulate nuclear tests. Yes. Um, And that was why they needed uh, a lot of computing power uh, and something a machine that could run a lot of calculations very quickly because they wanted to... Uh you know this is not something you want to do hey well let's uh let's test out fifty nuclear warheads yeah this uh, you know they they wanted to do this with a computer simulation and uh, so that's why they started the initiative It was not a game but a uh, a challenge yeah. hey let's you know let's keep coming up with newer, faster machines because we need newer, faster machines to run nuclear simulations
0: yeah and and simulations in general were a big. Part of what these supercomputers were put to to use for. I mean, like climatology, for example, weather predictions. That was a big uh, requirement as well. Supercomputers have been put toward that to try and help uh, map and predict climate change mm-hmm. and just weather patterns. Not not just climate, but weather, day to day weather, and also um, other simulations as well. Not to mention crunching data from facilities that generate lots and lots of information. So um, things like uh, the SETI Institute mm-hmm. would Search
1: for extraterrestrial intelligence.
0: Yes, they, they would use very powerful computers to try and crunch all the data they would get from radio telescopes. Uh, you also had things like the Large Hadron Collider and other super colliders that generate lots and lots of data, and they need these really fast computers in order to process the data and make it meaningful. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Moving on, so right around this time when the ASCII Red comes out, um, that's when there was a shift in supercomputing. Mm-hmm. So before, there were all these customized uh, computers that had their own processors or had thousands of processors running together. Uh, but at this point, it became possible to actually build a supercomputer with off-the-shelf parts. Yeah you could actually get enough computers together and link them together to perform as a supercomputer. And this was also when there became a shift to using the Linux operating system. Uh, uh, So Linux kind of replaces Unix as the OS of choice for people who are designing supercomputers. Which is nice because now you can tell
1: the company nurse, never mind.
0: In 2002, uh, Japan comes back with the ASCII White, where it's had a, a 35 teraflops uh, computer. It was the NEC Earth Simulator, and it cost a, a, a hair under a billion dollars, mm-hmm. $900 million. It's a lot of hairs, actually. $100 million is a lot of hairs. If anyone wants to give me a hair in that sense, I will take it. Uh, in 2004, IBM comes out with the Blue Gene L computer. It had 16,000 computer nodes, and each node had two CPUs.
1: I'm going to be singing Bowie the rest of the day now.
0: So, yeah, 32,000 CPUs, ultimately, if my Mm -hmm. math is correct. And (laughs) that could run at 70 teraflops, so twice as fast as the ASCII white. And a 2007 version of this could actually manage up to 600 teraflops, and it had 100,000 computer nodes, so 200,000 processors with that. Starting to get into some pretty ridiculous computers from, uh, you know, if you're looking at it as, hey, I own a computer that's got a single processor. This one has 200,000 of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. It also sort of uh, um, makes Apple's claim in the late 90s um, sort of silly um, because, well, the federal government, uh, classified a supercomputer, um, I, I can't remember exactly when it was, it was in the late nineties and, uh, uh, as, as a machine that would run a gigaflop and, um, IBM, when they were still running on, on power process, power PC processors, um, there was a Mac that they advertised as being a supercomputer, uh, because it could reach a gigaflop. Yes. Um, and I just thought at, at the time it was kind of weird to think about, um, but now it's just kind of silly when you take it into context, that, and these these actual supercomputers at the time, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, a gigaflop is good, but no, <laughs> right. So
0: a megaflop is a million floating operations per second. Mm-hmm. A gigaflop is a billion floating mm-hmm. operations per second. A teraflop is a trillion floating operations per second. Uh-huh. Well, and then there's a petaflop, which is a, uh, a quadrillion floating operations per second per. Second, Yeah, quadrillion. And the first supercomputer to hit that and break that barrier was another IBM machine, the Roadrunner. Meep, meep. <laughs> and uh, it had 20,000 CPUs and it was the first computer to break that petaflop mm. barrier. So one quadrillion floating operations per second. It's a serious machine. It's a lot of math. Chris and I will return to discussing supercomputers in just a moment after this quick break. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sites that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If
4: you travel, you know. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures with the available iForce max hybrid powertrain. You can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before, or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true with new available tech. This legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
3: There's plenty to celebrate in March and expect. craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radios iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
0: working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data wi-fi hotspot with at&t in-car wi-fi Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town, I use my smartphone to look up things to do, or most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express
4: card. If you travel, you know.
0: In 2010, there was an interesting development because China entered mm-hmm. the supercomputer fray. Now, at this point, it was really a battle down between the United States and Japan, and Germany also has quite a few supercomputers as well, but, but US and Japan were the ones that were stealing the record back from between each other. And then China came out with a, a computer which I, I'm sure I'm gonna mispronounce because I, I don't know how to pronounce Chinese, but uh, Tianhe is how it would be spelled in English. And mm-hmm. uh, and someone's probably going to say it's Xinhe or something like that.
1: Well, yeah, if you know how uh, to pronounce that, please let us know.
0: Yeah, because I don't. Uh, but it was a, a computer from China that could run at 2.5 petaflops and uh it had 14,336 Intel Xeon X5670 CPUs and 7,168 Nvidia Tesla GPUs. And so that was, you know, a really impressive machine that was that that stole all the titles away in 2010, but also another important moment uh for China in that year. Was that China developed the Sunway, which was slow by supercomputer standards. Mm -hmm. Because it could only run a petaflop. (laughs) Right. Um, and they had already gotten up to 2.5 petaflops. Petaflop is still incredibly fast, people. I'm just, slow, slow in general terms here, uh, relative terms. But the cool thing about the Sunway, at least from China's perspective, is that it was the first supercomputer China had designed with all Chinese processors. Oh okay so they weren't depending upon some other company's process or some other country processors they they wanted to be able to be uh self-reliant when it came to developing computers and so that China really pushed its uh its computer engineering industry mm-hmm. and was able to design you know the Chinese um, uh, engineers were able to design this this supercomputer mm-hmm. Uh Then you had Fujitsu's K supercomputer, which until recently held the record. It was capable of running up to uh, 10 petaflops with 88,128 Spark 64 processors. Mm -hmm. And each CPU had 16 gigabytes of local RAM, and it had 1,377 terabytes
1: of memory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And eventually it got up to uh, 705,000 processor cores. It sits in uh, Japan's RIKEN Advanced Institute for Computational Science. It sits and it thinks. (laughs) Uh, And That's funny. It's ASCII only spelled in different... I mean, the letters are in different... Um, Anyway, sorry. I just noticed that as I was looking down at my notes. Um, That's actually sort of why we decided to do this now, because it was just the week that we're recording this that we found out about the the test. Now, they do these, these tests twice a year every 6 months they have the top 500 supercomputer sites um so computers from all over w- the world uh they put them on wheels at the top of this big hill and it's push it giant down the hill slot car race <laughs> it's like a big computer soapbox derby yeah. no they they uh they give them problems to solve and uh see who's the fastest the top 500 supercomputers in the world which in a way is kind of silly but at the same time, very very cool, and you can actually see the results of this if you want to. If you go to top500.org, um, there there are uh, the organizations that put it on uh, publish this every year, and that happens to be the University of Mannheim, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and the University of Tennessee actually do this, and they um, are trying to figure out the the fastest and the Fastest was just announced. The new Fastest was yes. just announced this week, and we thought that would be a great time to talk about it. It's a machine actually named for a tree.
0: Yes, it is the IBM Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when we say recording this week, the date is June 22nd, mm-hmm.
2: 2012.
0: And yeah. so the Sequoia has taken the title of Fastest Supercomputer, which means that uh, that's from IBM. So it means the USA has the title once more. Uh, at least until the next Supercomputer Olympics. And, um, uh, yeah.
1: It, <laughs> it looks... has a, a giant gold medal that is stamped on the outside of the machine. No, so you're,
0: you're probably all asking, hey, so what are some stats on this, uh, this Sequoia computer? How well, How fast can it go and what, what's making it tick?
1: Well, I do want to point out that it is owned by the uh, Department of Energy. Um, so this isn't really a military machine. Uh, as Necessarily, you would think of it. <laughs> it is at the uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, um, and yes, the uh, the specs on this are pretty impressive. I mean, it uses seven thousand nine hundred I mean, eight hundred and ninety kilowatts. Yeah, it's, which it's is actually fairly efficient for a supercomputer.
0: Yeah, it has one million five hundred seventy two thousand eight hundred sixty four processors. And 1.6 petabytes of memory. Mm-hmm. It takes up 3,422 square feet of space. So we've finally gotten back to that, those enormous computers. Remember the, the stretch was 2,000 square feet. Now this one's 3,422 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can run at uh, 16.32 petaflops. So. 6.32 petaflops faster. Well, not even quite that much because the 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 K eventually got up to 10.5, but it is significantly faster than the K. So IBM now holds the the distinction of having the fastest or having designed the fastest supercomputer in the world. Mm-hmm. Now I thought it'd be kind of fun to. To compare that to IBM's Watson computer because that made headlines last year when Watson uh, was designed uh, in part to compete against humans in a very human game because we've Mm -hmm. already talked about computers playing chess against humans. We've also talked about computers playing other games against humans. In fact, we did a whole episode about this particular computer. We sure did. Uh, so IBM's Watson was designed to play in a game show. Let's make a deal. So they called out Watson and it, no. ra- it didn't know which it was door not. the goat was behind.
1: <laughs> well it was it did have a dress on. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't really it know.
0: wasn't let's make a deal. It was Jeopardy. And uh and in Jeopardy, of course, you are given an answer, you have to come up with the appropriate question. And uh it's it's really tricky for a computer to do this because it's not just an uh a matching. Game where you match an, an answer to a question. You also have to take in context. Sometimes there's wordplay. Sometimes there's a riddle. Um, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just question-answer.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they specifically wanted it to play a human game. They didn't alter the, uh, the clues. They're actually clues. On this uh, show, if you've never seen it, um, they give you the answer, and they, you are supposed to supply the question. And uh, they use wordplay and, and things in these clues... And they specifically want, the IBM engineers specifically wanted it to play a human game to to test its natural language processing ability. Can it figure out what, from context, what it is you're talking about? And it did very well. Yeah. So
0: what was powering the Watson, if you want to compare it to, say, the Sequoia? Mm -hmm. Well, it had a, uh, it was using 90 IBM Power 750 servers in 10 server racks. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had 16 terabytes of memory and 2,880 processors, um, so or processor cores, I should say, not just processors. Yeah. Uh, and so 2,880, that sounds like a lot. But then you compare that to the 1,572,864 processors that the Sequoia has, and you realize that Watson, as far as supercomputers go, doesn't merit mention, mm-hmm. it's the, you know, which, again – Watson was designed for a very specific purpose. This whole natural language, being able to recognize that and being able to come up with information, that's a very specialized uh, computer. So it doesn't necessarily have to have this incredible, by comparison, processing speed and and number crunching ability, right? which might be used for other very intensive uh, tasks. So things like very, very realistic simulations, that kind of thing, and predictions. Mm -hmm. So... I just wanted to compare that so that people could understand because Watson's one of those words that we've heard a lot about, and we think of that as like a supercomputer, but really, if we define supercomputer as a computer that has is on that bleeding edge of what a computer is capable of doing it mm-hmm. does not it doesn't measure up
1: but when you talk about uh comparing the top five hundred or uh putting a computer in a chess match or in a uh, game of jeopardy um you know, I was, I, I made the joke that it was a little silly and yeah, you could, you could say that. You're using a computer. You could be using it for scientific purposes or doing something and instead you're, you're taking time off to do something else. But really, um, uh, it's nice that for one thing, people understand what it is a su- supercomputer is and can do. And also it's, uh, it's a way to test out these machines and make them better. Um, you know, even li- like I was talking about the, uh, the power used by the uh, the Sequoia machine it's considerably more efficient than the K computer um, the 700- 7,890 kilowatts uh, beats K's twelve thousand six hundred fifty nine kilowatts mm-hmm. so with every every time that they come out with a new supercomputer it's more efficient they find better ways to route instructions um, you know and and they can make things smaller than than before so you really do see the implications in, in our, our everyday computers because now we have uh, multi-core processors in um, these everyday devices that we use. Um, you don't necessarily need that to write a letter or surf the Internet, but it does make things faster and more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, computers are, are more reliable. You see uh, advances in operating systems that we use every day because um, the, the things that they found out um, in the process of making these supercomputers, they find better ways to route instructions in a simpler computer. Um, and so, it's really worth it to do these these tests and uh, find out just what a computer can do. So, you know, having a challenge uh, just for the fun of it, you know, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. Um, you know, especially when we can, we can make advances and build on those for the next generation of machines.
0: Yep. And uh, just to kind of sum this up, I thought I would just kind of a fun fact. If you look at the top 10 fastest supercomputers in the world, uh, three of them are in the United States. Uh-huh. Uh Two of them are in Germany. Two of them are in China. And the other three are in Japan, Italy and France. And that's it for this classic episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, <laughs> it was recorded in 2012. We've had Bigger and better supercomputers come out since then. And we've also seen the rise of graphics processing units that have largely supplanted supercomputers in many, but not all, applications. I've done other episodes about that. You can search our archive if you want to see those. The way you do that is you pop on over to our website, techstuffpodcast.com. We have the archive there. It is searchable, so you can look for specific uh, episodes that cover you know, specific topics. Maybe you don't see the topic you want. Maybe you do a search and nothing comes up. Well, then you can write me an email and suggest that topic to me. The address is at com, or you can pop on over to Facebook or Twitter. We have the handle techstuffhsw at both of those. You can send us a suggestion that way as well. And I hope to talk to you again really soon. compatibility